You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series through the book of James. Yes, we're starting to, in James, and we'll probably be, I'm, I'm looking at about 20 weeks to cover this, um, so we're going to race right through it. Um, on Wednesday nights, we're, we're going to be going through the book of Genesis, and um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm looking more like 80 weeks, um, but uh, I'm pretty excited about it and uh, invite you to be with us. It's really going to be a, a, really, I think that choosing these two books as, as focus of our study was somewhat strategic. Uh, because of the season that we're in as a church and, and many of us are in our lives. And I think particularly this Genesis study laying a foundation uh, of what our faith is all about because um, a lot of the things that are covered in the book of Genesis are under a lot of salt with our culture and we want to be able to, ha- have a, be able to give an explanation of why we believe what we believe. So I encourage you to join with us. But if you don't mind, would you turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 1. And I want to begin by reading the entirety of verse 1. So if you don't mind, it, you would stand with me as we read that and then we'll get into this study. The text opens this way. James chapter 1 verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God... And the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Let's pray. Father, I ask as we begin our study of this this marvelous book, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give us insight and understanding, but most importantly, Lord, an application that will lead to action. Uh, We know in many of our lives that's where the disconnect comes. We know what we're supposed to do. But somehow the the good that we're supposed to do, we don't find ourselves doing it. We confess our frustration. In fact, we confess our guilt many times at that. We ask God that this would be the beginning of a journey that would lead us to greater joy, greater victory, greater peace in our own hearts. That we might celebrate the work of your spirit in us, Lord. We trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In 2002, uh, biblical research or biblical archaeological uh, magazine featured an interesting article. A man by the Od- of Oded Golan had, in 1972, some 30 years old years earlier, as a teenager, had bought an a, a ossuary. And now, what an ossuary is is basically a stone box that uh, is about yay long and this wide, and it's used specifically for keeping the bones of people who have died. And he had held it as part of his private collection until he allowed them to photograph it, and it set off a firestorm of interest, mainly because of an inscription that was chiseled on the side of the box. But let me begin by explaining to you more in detail what an ossuary is. The word ossuary literally means a, a bone box, and uh, the idea is that they carve these boxes out of limestone in Israel. And after death, when a person has died, obviously, they anoint the body with fragrant oils and perfumes and then wrap it in linen cloths, just the way they prepared the body of Jesus. And the reason for that is, is fairly simple. Basically, it hastens the decay of the body so that after 12 months, the body has been reduced to dust, at least the flesh and all the soft tissue. But they take that body and they lay it inside a a bed, basically, a stone bed, and then come back 12 months later and collect the bones and put them into the ossuary box. And the box is really the length of the longest bone in your body, which is your femur uh, from your hip to your knee. 
That's all the box has to be in length so because everything else will then fit into the box. This box then is taken, as you can see in this illustration, they're stuffed into these niches and are, are kept there, kind of along the same lines when Jacob said that when he was going to die, he would want to be gathered together with his fathers. The idea is that all of your relatives, their bones are all gathered together in the same place and stored in these receptacles. These bone boxes are, are fairly common. I mean, it's not like you can find them everywhere, but I could take you around places in Jerusalem and point out to you uh, where they're being stored, and you could look at them in museums and a number of different places. But they're not rare in and of themselves. But what made this one particularly unique, again, was this inscription on the side, because it said this, James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. And there's only one individual within that first century time period who could fit this description, and it is a man who is the author of the book that we're looking at. James, the elder of the church in Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, there is a uh, erroneous notion that's been around for centuries that Mary and Joseph had no children after the birth of Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, the scriptures tell us that he did. In fact, in, in Mark 6.23, when they're questioning in, in Nazareth about Jesus' message and his miracles, they, they ask, isn't this Mary's son the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here as well? So that Jesus was the firstborn of Mary and Joseph, or excuse me, of Mary being conceived by the Holy Spirit, but Mary and Joseph afterwards had a number of children, as Mark indicates. One of the things I find interesting to me, just from my own perspective, I think it must have been very difficult growing up in the shadow of perfection. Um, my brother tried to convince me that was a dynamic in our home, and sometimes the way my parents treated us, I thought that maybe it was true, but the simple fact is the oldest one usually is, you know, comes across as being smarter, stronger, faster, and better because they're always ahead of you as you're growing up. They know more, they can do more, but think about as you grow up and you begin to realize in your teen years that your older brother actually is perfect. <laughs> he actually is smarter. He actually is better than anybody else. I say that because I think that may explain why there was such a reticence on the part of Jesus' brothers and sisters to actually believe his message when he began his ministry. That may be seem inconceivable to you and I, but exactly that's what Scripture tells us. Mark again tells us in chapter 3 that his family basically thought he was out of his mind. They came to get him in Capernaum and take him back to Nazareth because he was saying wild and crazy things that they knew were going to get him in serious trouble with the religious leadership of their time. In fact, John says later on in John chapter 7 that even his own brothers did not believe in him. But that all changed, and it changed rather quickly because it's Paul who tells us to, in writing to the Corinthians that after Jesus' resurrection, he simply says, he appeared to James. No other details are given to us, but he appeared to James, and the impact appears to have been immediate and pretty dramatic, because soon we find that James, his half-brother, is numbered with the disciples. In Acts chapter 1, as the 11 apostles are gathering uh, after Judas had committed suicide and Jesus had been ascended into heaven, it says they joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, we were given their name, James, 
Jude, uh, Jude uh, Simon, and so forth. So they're amongst that group. But it's sometime later on that the ancient historian, uh, Christian historian Eusebius, writes that shortly before the persecution of Saul began to fall upon the church, that the apostles, it says, quote, chose James the righteous as the bishop of Jerusalem. He was chosen not because he was the brother of Jesus. I mean, one of the things that stands out about James is we see no posturing, no name dropping. You know, if my older brother was Jesus, I would have trouble keeping that a secret. You know, it's just like, you know, I was talking to my brother Jesus the other day. It's just kind of the way we are, isn't it? We, we, we do that, but there's none of that in James. He humbly and honestly, as we just read, introduces us to him in the truth of who he is, how he sees himself, not as the half-brother of Jesus, but literally as a servant, we might literally translate a slave, because that's what the word doulos means, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That that humility becomes the benchmark of his character that we follow throughout the rest of his ministry and his life. You see, it was not his name, it was not his lineage, it wasn't even his ambition that led him to the position of being the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. It was this remarkable character, so much that even his enemies referred to him as James the Just, James the Righteous One. In fact, they even had a nickname for him. They called him Camel Knees. His knees had been splayed because he'd spent so many hours on his knees in prayer, and particularly we're told by the, by the early Christian writer Hegesippus that he prayed constantly that the Jews would come to know Jesus. That he, so that even his enemies could find no fault in him, at least until so many of their disciples, particularly disciples of the Pharisees, began to turn away from following the Pharisees and began to embrace Christ. That's when they took him to the pinnacle of the temple. The pinnacle of the temple, uh, if you can see in this picture, if you go to the very top of this long wall, you'll see that there was a place called the place of trumpeting. It's where they would blow the trumpet, trumpets to signal the beginning of the Sabbath and the different feasts. They took him up here and they basically gave him an order that he was to refute, recant, deny that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Savior of mankind. But when they got him up there, instead, of, instead he shouted out to the crowd below, we're told, Hegesippus tells us, why do you ask me about Jesus? He sits in heaven at the right hand of the great power and he will soon come on the clouds of heaven. The Pharisees were so horrified that they flung him off the pinnacle. It's about 130 feet and you land on solid pavement, yet miraculously or amazingly, he was still alive lying there on the pavement. In fact, we're told that when they came up to him, they began to pelt him with stones and rather than cursing, he sat there and prayed, I beg you, Lord God, our Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. At that point, a fuller, a guy who basically there are people who stirred dirty clothes and made them clean and white with these great paddles and boiling pots, a fuller came over with his club and bashed his skull in and his life ended in that moment. Interestingly, that soon afterwards, the city began to unravel into sectarian violence 
that only ended when the Romans conquered and destroyed the city of Jerusalem eight years later. It's almost as if that he was somewhat of a glue that was holding the community together, and when he was gone, the whole community began to unravel in violence. But his martyrdom is not what makes this letter so special. Nor is it the fact that this is the oldest letter of the New Testament, written somewhere around 45 to 50 B.C. I mean, it's, it's very early, and it's very clear Jewish character expresses that. I mean, he doesn't talk about the church. He talks about the synagogue. He uses the, the great Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. Uh, there's a number of phrases and things like that that come up in the letter that show that he's writing from a Jewish culture into a Jewish context so it's the oldest, it's also one of the simplest books of the New Testament, but something most of us come to understand, just because something is simple doesn't make it easy. And so it is that this is one of the hardest books, at least for me personally, to read through in the New Testament, and maybe because it's so simple. Because what James does is he makes it very hard to ignore the obvious, and the obvious is that if I say I have faith and yet it doesn't manifest it in my life, in actions and in deeds, then something is amiss. In fact, one commentator made this observation about the book. He says, James drives home the importance of living out our faith. He challenges us to examine our life and in so doing assault every area in which we profess to have faith but fail to show any evidence. And then he makes this statement which really I thought was pretty powerful. Even though our vocabularies may be bulging with all the right words, our lifestyles are often anemic and lack spiritual substance. You see, the letter of James is not written in the form of a theological treatise, like we might say about Romans or even Galatians. In fact, he only mentions the name of Jesus twice. He never mentions the cross, the resurrection, the Holy Spirit, not once in the entire letter. But what he does talk about is essentially, as I'd like to often put it, if the difference that Jesus makes doesn't make a difference, what difference does it make? That somehow, if we have Christ, that should translate itself in our life. Typically, James puts it more succinctly with his great economy of words, unlike me, who has to spend all my words for fear I'll lose them. He simply says in, in, in verse 22 of chapter 1, and again in verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So that what James does in this letter, step by step, he dissembles the disingenuous parts of your and my life and challenges us in response to dig deeper into the things of God and to follow Jesus with more intentionality, to follow him harder, to press in, as Paul would put it. Now, we just completed a six-part study of the events of the second coming of Christ. Almost the entire month of January was spent on that. I don't know if you noticed that I ended each of those messages with the same verse. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, it reads like this. It says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And then he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way. Now, that word everything in the original language means everything. You come here for that kind of insight. (laughs) But he asked this question rhetorically, what sort of people ought you to be? I mean, if these things are true, what kind of choices and decisions and even disciplines should we be incorporating into our life? And he adds, to be in holy conduct and godliness. You see, that series had three goals, and I know this is kind of remedial for you, but I had three intentional goals when I taught that series. I wanted to, first of all, inform you so that you would know what the Bible says about the last days, that you would see the Bible is still a very live and living book with speaking into the realities of events that are taking place in our life right now. It's common for people to kind of assume that the Bible is something from the past that's filled of mythical cosmology about events that probably never took place and so forth and so on, which is part of the reason why we're going to be studying Genesis to kind of refute that concept as well. But the whole point is that when you become informed, you become aware of things that you didn't know before. But secondly, what I wanted to do on the heels of that was to convince you As James put it in chapter 5, verse 7, the Lord's coming is near. Or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 13, he says, our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. But thirdly, I did it because I wanted to challenge you to begin to live your life with the objective of saying, I want to live a holy and a godly life. Now, when it comes to the Christian life, most of us already answer the why question. Why should I live for God? Well, we understand why. He saved us, and He's our ultimate uh, destination. But where we struggle is what that looks like, and, and how do we actually do that? What does it mean to live a godly and a holy life? And how do I go about doing that? Because quite honestly, every one of us who's ever met Christ has tried to fulfill the what and the how, and we often end up where Paul ended up in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, where he says, I don't understand myself at all. (laughs) I don't understand myself at all. In other words, there's this living contradiction in my life that I just can't seem to get a handle on. For he goes on and says, I really want to do what's right but I don't do it. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. One of the things that I have discovered as a teacher, as a pastor, as a preacher, however you want to classify me, is that guilt really works. I mean, you can guilt people into doing stuff and it really motivates them for a little while. We feel really good. You need to start reading your Bible every day. Okay. And I go home and I get up at the crack of dawn. I read my Bible. And the next day I'm reading my Bible with my face in it asleep. And before long, I said, oh, well, maybe I'll just sleep in it a little longer. And, you know, you're good for a short period of time until the next guilt message comes along and gets you going again. But at some point, you begin to go through that cycle enough. You begin to say, wait a minute. Why isn't this really not taking hold? Why is this this, this not really gripping my life in a way where it doesn't feel like I'm trying to climb up a glass mountain? 
like I'm trying to chew glass? Why does it feel like I'm just in this routine, the rigors of discipline and rules and regulations, but I'm not really experiencing this abundant life that Jesus spoke about? Well, James gives us the answer to those questions. And twice in the letter, he uses an interesting phraseology. He talks about laws that liberate. Laws that liberate. Now, I know for most of us, that sounds like an oxymoron. (laughs) Because we don't think of laws as being something that liberate us. When we hear the word law, it implies restrictions, constriction, control, commands, maybe even condemnation. We see it as a set of rigorous rules and regulations that only serve to show me how bad I am and how far I have fallen from the mark. It's the reason why many people avoid church. As one woman put it so well, so well, she said, why would I want to go to church? I feel so bad already. I don't need more help. But when James says laws, he's referring to something different than what we're thinking. He's not thinking about a set of rules and regulations. He's talking about a way of living your life that leads to freedom. It reminds me of a a woman I know who one time after admiring somebody who could sit down at the piano and just play effortlessly, or so it appeared. This person could just sit there and just, it's like they didn't even have to think about it. The music just ran off their fingers onto the keys, and it was just amazing to see this dexterity and this ability. And, and, And she literally said this in a musing kind of way, but I think she was very seriously. She says, you know, it doesn't look that hard. I, sometimes I just feel like I could just sit down at the piano and just start playing. And <laughs> I try not to laugh when I hear those things, especially if I find out they're being serious. Because the reality is when she tried, she couldn't. And the reason she couldn't, because when she was young, she wouldn't. She was unwilling to endure the 10,000 to 20,000 hours of learning and practice to become an accomplished pianist. In a way, we would simply say, if you want to become a great keyboardist, then you have to submit to the laws of the piano. You have to submit to the law of baseball if you want to play that game. How about the laws of golf? It's always amazing to me. I'll see guys saying, you know, I just can't get that discipline of the Christian life together. I mean, I know I should read. I know I should pray. I know I should do these things. But I just can't even, just can't do it. But man, talk to them about their golf game, and it's unbelievable. (laughs) They, they can tell you all the things. They'll tell you about the practice and the, the study and the effort they put into it. And the reason is because they see a cause-benefit relationship. If I put effort into it, then I will benefit and my game will go up and the people who are willing to go out on the links with me become of a higher caliber and I'll gain a certain kind of status and recognition amongst my peers as being a guy who can really play a great round of golf or whatever. And you can take that into every area of your life. Every one of us has some area in which we have striven and put lots of time, effort, and energy to become experts at what we do. Now, granted, some of you have done it in areas where you're not going to make a lot of money, like video games and TV. But the whole point, unless you're going to go on Jeopardy, it's not going to really pay off, right? But the whole point is that 
you acquire a certain capacity and ability because you have put the time, the energy, and the effort into that thing. And you saw an investment ratio, benefit ratio that if I invest this much time, it will pay off in my life in this way or that way. But we seem to not understand that the same thing is true in the spiritual life. In fact, scriptures speak about it over and over again. And, uh, and I think part of the problem we have is because getting saved comes so freely, it, comes, it costs us nothing, it comes to us easily, I, I confess my sins, I ask Jesus into my heart, and the Holy Spirit comes in and takes up residence in my life. You really couldn't describe anything any simpler and in some ways any easier than getting saved. So we automatically begin to think, well, the whole Christian life is going to be like that. It's just going to be kind of, this, I'm going to, it's going to glide and abide. And what James does is he shatters that entire notion. When he says in the very first, uh, the fourth verse, he says, perseverance is what it takes to become mature and complete and to feel like you're lacking nothing. Perseverance. In fact, as I said, it's, the whole New Testament says this over and over again. In, in Matthew 28, 19, it says, train everyone in this way of life. In Ephesians 4.12, it says, equip God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. In 1 Timothy 4.7, he says, train yourself to be godly. In fact, the word gymnazo that's used there is where we get our word gymnasium. It was the word of the palestra where they would go in and they would exercise and they would train for the, the Olympic Games. That's the idea that there was a discipline and a training that was part of your life which would basically equip you in the way of life that God wants you to live, which is a God-focused life. When we talk about being godly, it doesn't mean that you've attained sinless perfection. It doesn't mean that when people see you, they mistake you for Jesus. What it means is that they see that the focus and the trajectory of life is upon Jesus. That you are God-focused in what you're doing with your life. That He becomes the common denominator behind all of your choices and your decisions. He is the driving force, the motive power before, behind how you live. In fact, using another athletic metaphor, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.24 described his spiritual -like life much like the training of an Olympic athlete. He says, do you not know that in a race... All the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Now, all of us know what it's like to run not to get the prize. When I was in high school and we had to run laps, I had no interest in being the first one around the track. I just wanted to be far enough along not to get in trouble for being so far behind. In other words, your heart isn't in it. You're not really working that hard. And what Paul says is, no, we have to be like those athletes that do what they do with such an intentionality and such a focus that our goal is to win the race that God has individually selected for you to run. 
And it's important to understand that nobody else can run your race. God has given you a lane in life that may not be absolutely clear to you, but it is your lane. He has created you for it. He has chosen you for it. You see, one of the biggest misconceptions that my generation had about athletics is that there was a typical physique that fit athleticism. That all athletes were pretty much supposed to fit into this profile. What we have discovered now is that the reason that people are swimming faster and running faster and jumping higher is that there are certain people who are predisposed by their genetic makeup to be really good at that. So that if you take you know, a guy like a, the, the greatest swimmer in the world, what is the thing about his body that stands out? Well, ironically, he wears the same size pants that I do, but he's four inches taller than I am. So that it means is his legs are relatively short in comparison to his torso, but his body is really long, his shoulders are really wide, his chest cavity is huge, and his arms are orangutan-like. I mean, he is close to being a knuckle-dragger. I mean, and the, the guy jumps in the window, into the water. He has no body drag. He's all motion and power, and nobody can keep up with him. You take the greatest long-distance runners in the world. They're kind of just the opposite. They're skinny as a rail. Half their body is their legs. <laughs> Men who are shorter than me wear pants five, six inches longer than I wear. Their upper body is thin, but their lungs are huge. And there's a sleekness to them that enables them to run long distances for a long period of time at tremendous rates of speed. And I use that illustration because what we need to understand, what God has done in the natural world to give certain people advantages in certain areas of their life, He has done for you and me individually in the spiritual world. In the world of man, we have those winners and we have the losers. And most of us have been on the downside of that equation. If life is a bell curve, we're the knocker, okay? But what God has done is he's created you for his world for who you are. He gave you that head. He gave you that hair. He gave you those eyes, those noses, those one nose, please. And he gave you all of that stuff and made you the way you were because he was designing you to be you so that you could run in the lane that he has created you for. And that, like the great Olympic runner who once said, he ran because when he runs, he feels God's pleasure. So that when we're in the lane that God has created for us and we're running it to win, we begin to feel God's pleasure. But I'm not trying to be somebody else. I'm trying to be who God wants me to be. And that may set me apart in various but important ways from other people. And that may mean that some people don't quite understand why you're passionate or interested in what you are. But you are created by God to run in this lane. He says you need to run it with everything that's in it within you. Then he adds to that everyone who competes in the games goes into Strict training. Even that, the original word that's used there, its, it, its root is the idea of agonizing. Agonizing training. 
They go into a strict discipline and training. And he says, they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, Paul says of himself, I do not run like a man who is running aimlessly, and I do not fight like a man who is beating the air. In other words, I know where I'm going, and I know what the prize is, and I'm pursuing it with everything that's in me. You see, what he's really kind of confronting in that statement is the half-heartedness that we often bring to our spiritual lives. The half-heartedness we bring to our spiritual lives. One Jewish rabbi was commenting on the fate of the Jews during the Holocaust. And he made an interesting statement because Somebody was arguing that, well, as Jews, we should have tried to assimilate into the German culture and therefore we would have avoided the, the, the hatred that the Jews developed towards us. And his response was, our problem wasn't we were too Jewish. He says, our problem was we weren't Jewish enough. We tried to assimilate. We tried to fit in. We tried to become part of. But we're a people who will never be accepted because we are the chosen of God. And I think there's something true about that. I think there's truth in that about for you and I as well. That we are called to be a people who are set apart. That if we're taking our cues on how to live our life, how to be happy and successful from the culture around us, we are going to be an extremely frustrated people. He talks about it, and we'll get into it further, where he talks about being the double-minded man. We can't decide which lane we're going to run in because... There's this one that promises all of these things, and then there's this one that God calls me to. There's this one that looks like I can just slide down it without any effort, that it's always downhill, and then there's this other way that God wants me to go that kind of feels like it's uphill in the snow both directions. And so our natural inclination is to listen to the serpent who said, if you eat of this fruit, do you realize that you'll have the freedom and the liberty and the power of God? And God says, don't believe him. The psychologists refer to the dynamic as life traps. Life traps, I, I like the term. Because it really reminds me of uh, three verses in the New Testament that have really kind of uh, stuck out to me over the last couple of years. Paul makes these three different statements, first to the Corinthians, then to Timothy, and then to the Ephesians. He says, first of all, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2.11, he says, do not be unaware of the devil's schemes. Literally, it's the word schemes there, his, his designs, his devices, his stratagems. In other words, he says, you have to understand that the enemy of our soul is strategizing, he's plotting against you. And he's doing it, I think, for all of us individually. He's finding ways in which he can get us off the track and hopefully bring increasing levels of frustration, discouragement, depression, and even destruction into our lives. There is, in essence, an enemy of our soul who is deadly serious about being your enemy. The second thing he says in, in 2 Timothy 2.26, he says that we should be praying and pleading that People will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who is taking them captive to do his will. 
The word trap there literally means a, a, a slip noose. It's a, a bait trap. When I was a, a young boy, we had a lot of birds where I grew up in California, a lot of sparrows and different birds that would fly around. And I don't know how I ever got this, on this kick, but I, I, one day I figured out if I took a, a, a wooden fruit box and I propped up one end with a stick and put a string around that stick and then threw some breadcrumbs underneath the box, I could hide in the bushes and the birds would flock in under that box and as soon as I got as many birds as in there that I thought I could hold, I'd pull the stick out and boom, the box would close. Now this created a whole different problem. I thought, what am I going to do now? You know, my mom wasn't into serving up uh, Sparrow and you know, so, but it was the idea I had captured them. But that's exactly what he's talking about. He says, Satan has these bait traps out there, these things that we go looking for. It's like the missionary story I heard years ago of a missionary coming to a, a, a village in New Guinea, and, and they, because he was the honored guest, they said, well, let's go out and, and hunt basically the local delicacy, which just happened to be monkey. And he said the way they did it was really interesting because the monkeys are pretty hard to you know, get within range with a primitive bow and arrow, so they would simply take a coconut shell, they would put a hole in the top, only big enough for the monkey to insert his hand into it. They would put a piece of raw meat, because believe it or not, monkeys like to eat meat. They put a piece of raw meat in the coconut shell and put it at the base of the tree. The monkeys would scurry down, run up to the coconut shell, see the meat, stick their hand in it, grasp it, and now they've made a fist and the hole is too small to pull their hand out. And they said, those monkeys would not release that meat. And so they just simply walk over and just shoot it right there on the spot. And then you get to eat it. The delicacy was, he going to say that he got to eat the best part, which was the head. Uh, convinced me never to be a missionary. <laughs> but anyway, unless I could go to some place where there's McDonald's down the street. But nonetheless, the bottom line was the idea is that we get trapped and we grab onto something and we don't want to let it go. We don't want to let it go sometimes because it's comfortable and it's familiar because we're afraid of not having it. If I don't do this, then how can I do that? The third verse that stood out to me was in Ephesians 2, 427, where he says, do not give the devil a foothold. So here are three things that he says in our life. There's the devil's schemes. I have this enemy of my soul that's plotting against me. I have his traps that he sets up in his plottings to catch me in, to get me to grab hold of something that I don't want to release. And then he uses that as a foothold or a platform to begin to advance even further into my life. And that's why I call these things life traps. Schemes, traps, footholds. That what we find that in our lifetimes that the enemy has used people, he's used situations, he's used circumstances. And they have so grasped onto who we are that we are entrapped by them. And they set up in our life a life pattern that reverberates again and again throughout our lifetime. Someone asked recently, they said, if all of your relationships are bad, what's the one common denominator? You see, what James does, and, I, and this is what I love hate about this letter, he never lets me get into the blame game. 
He never lets me go into the side rails and, and get lost in the details and the weeds. He always brings us back to things about, but what about you and your response to God? He goes on and, and says, you know, don't say that you're tempted by God or tempted by the devil or tempted by anybody else. When you are, are tempted, you follow your own lust and you create the dynamic that you now hate in your life. That at some point, if any growth or change or victory is going to come into my life, I have to stop trying to find the explanation outside of myself and begin to look inward and say, what is it about me? What is it that I've done wrong? Where, what are the, the, the basically the, the schemas that I've set up in my life that I keep on going back to over and over and over again? I think this explains many, why the frust, many people feel frustrated in their Christian journey. Because even though they may go to church faithfully and they may read their Bibles daily and they pray and they fast and they fellowship and they follow, they serve, they give, they sacrifice, they find themselves always falling back again into the same old patterns, the same old behaviors. And that's where people get really discouraged and kind of want to say, I just give up. You know, successful people, people who feel that they're successful in their lives, never get weary of becoming successful. Have you ever met anybody who said, you know, my business is so, going so well, I just want to make it fail. <laughs> oh, my marriage is so great, I'm going to get a divorce. My kids are doing so good, I'm going to stop having kids. Well, you may have said that one, but... <laughs> But seriously, when we are feeling like we're winning at what life puts in front of us, we are energized, we are built up, we are encouraged, we're strengthened. And when we feel like God isn't answering my prayers and nothing changes, and I'm just caught in the same cycle, and it's just the same thing with a different face or a different name or a different temperature, but it's basically, I'm not going anywhere that I'm stuck in the weeds of life and I feel like I'm caught in a web that I can't get out of. You see, as you get older, that's where people my age start getting depressed. You start looking back on the years, you start remembering all the things you regret, I wish I had, I wish I hadn't, and you go through all of those dynamics because you don't see yourself on this path you're not running any longer as if you are trying to win and you start running aimlessly. You start beating at the air. And sometimes we make these radical changes because we're convinced that if we just do something really radical and out of the box, that will make our life wonderful. It's like the couple that came to me and it was, their, I think, their third marriage. And they wanted to get married and they were working on their third I asked them a loving question. What's going to be different this time? And they both assured me that it was going to be different because the person they were marrying was different. And then I asked the question, well, what is the common denominator in each of your marriages? It took them a while, like you, to think about it. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> Maybe that's where you start, are to start working, is on you. You know, 
Every one of us are really good at the blame game. <laughs> we're really, really good at it. I mean, we may not admit it, we may not even admit it to ourselves, but we're really good at the blame game. It's really easy to go there. But what I find is that doesn't get you anywhere and it doesn't solve anything because in the end of the day, there's only one person in the world that I can actually fix, and that's me. I wish I could fix you. I try to fix you. But you see, even what I do or say, even whatever it's worth, the reality is it will mean nothing if you just become hearers of what you hear, but there's never any action that follows. You see, James' letter does really three things. The very first thing is he exposes the, the schemes, the bait traps, the footholds that enable the enemy to take us captive. He, he, captive to what are often destructive patterns that cripple our relationship with God and cripple our relationship with other people. And it's amazing how he calls them out one by one. In fact, if you try to outline the book of James, you'll find that you'll get in all a muddle because it doesn't seem like he's following any precise track. It's like reading Proverbs. He just jumps from topic to topic to topic, but not really. What he's doing is going through the list of things that he saw as being the bait traps that Christians get caught in all the time and cripples their effectiveness. And we'll go through them one by one. Things like our impatience, our pride, our greed, our anger and wrath, our impurities, our hypocrisy, our gossip, our slander, our hatred, our envy, and all of these things. And what he offers to do is saying, I want to expose these things for what they are. That you would see them in yourself. Years ago, I was doing a series. I, I titled it Habits of the Heart. And it's kind of along the same lines. And each week I would touch on a different topic. And the topic coming up that next week was envy. And uh, that Friday, I used to golf with a group of guys every Friday. And um, uh, one of the guys was there and he says, oh, well, I wasn't at church on Sunday. And I said, oh, really? I, you shouldn't have told me. I didn't notice. Uh, you shouldn't rat on yourself, but I guess he felt guilty because he wasn't there, which he should because you should always be here. But <laughs> Joking. But I said, oh, really? How, what happened? He says, oh, I didn't want to come. I said, why not? He says, well, I knew you were talking about envy, and I don't have a problem with envy, so I didn't want to get beat up. <laughs> okay. I had to tell him, I envy the fact that you don't envy. Because <laughs> I envy. Everybody envies. You see, you can lie to yourself and say, well, it's not me, but it is you. And I hate to say it, for how many weeks, 20 weeks, whatever it's going to take us to go through this, you're going to get beat up every week. Not because I'm going to try and make you feel bad, but he just goes, you just go, ooh, wow, ah, yeah. And some are going to hurt really bad. And if that's where I leave you, then life is hard. <laughs> because that's what often happens. We just say, okay, I'm going to expose this issue here. Good luck with that. No, but he does more than that. He tells us how to escape that. And the, the secondary thing he does is he tells us how to confess it. In fact, I love the way he puts it at the end of the book in verse 16 of chapter 5. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And in the context, we'll find that what he's talking about is physical infirmities or illnesses that come to us as a consequence of sinful choices. 
Because there is a psychosomatic effect, you know, that it's interesting, some of the latest medical research has found that emotional pain impacts the brain and feels in the brain exactly the way physical pain feels. That when somebody is severely depressed and they, they tell you, I just, I just hurt all over, they're not making that up. It's the true effect. And basically, we begin to discover that, hey, unless I acknowledge to God that, God, I feel guilt, I feel shame, I feel a failure, I feel I'm disappointed and disgusted in myself and all of the, By confessing that and sometimes by being able to confess it to another person, it's amazing how that healing begins to flow in because that's also where it implies that you pray together. It's interesting in that same portion of the scripture where he talks about confessing, he seven times used the word pray, 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 pray. We confess not to try to get somebody else to pick up my guilt, but that we might agree together in prayer that God, we pray that you would deliver me from this bondage in my life. And it may be a little thing, it may be a huge thing. And thirdly, he says that the very last act is that we act. Faith without works, he simply says, is lifeless. I like that better than saying it's dead. It's not dead in the same that it's this carcass that's rotting over in the quarter and putting off a stench. Although that probably could be used as an illustration as well. But when it's, I have a faith, but it's just verbal. It's like something I agree with, but not something I commit to. It's something that I ascend is, is right, but I don't really pursue it. You know, it's <laughs> kind of like people saying, well, you know, everybody should vote. I just don't happen to do it myself. Basically says, but it, you wonder why there's a lifelessness there. And I think that many of us find ourselves, certainly not in every area of your Christian life, but let me tell you, all of us have those secret parts of your life. I heard this investigator say one time, there are three parts to every life. The first one is their public life, the second one is their personal life, and the last one is their private secret life. And I thought, oh, I asked my wife, do I have a secret life? She says, I don't know. <laughs> It's a secret. <laughs> Ooh, it just scared me at that thought. Oh, but the whole point is that you may have a secret part of your life. And you think that because it's secret, it's never going to affect me. But it does. Because there can be, as a result, areas of your life and it and, and affects all of your relationships, not only with God, but with other people, where it's just a lifelessness there. There's just a lifelessness there. And what James sets out to do, to help us to do, is to begin to get our hands and our minds around these issues and really begin to invite God to deal with this, to deal with this area of my life. If I do my job well, you're going to find that every week <laughs> it applies. Because these are the things that are common to us. And they're so common that here 2,000 years later, we're still reading about them and identifying with them. Now, the problem that many of us have is we can identify them in other people better than we can in ourselves. 
But I would always say that oftentimes recognizing fault in someone else is really nothing more than holding up the mirror. As my son used to always say, when you point a finger at me, you have three pointing back at you. That's why I always point with my whole hand now. (laughs) But when somebody says to me, oh, they are so arrogant. Huh. <laughs> how, how do you recognize that? <laughs> Why are you so familiar with what arrogance looks like, feels like, smells like? It's probably because you have a smidgen of that yourself. Well, so you've had fair warning. That's what's coming. You know what to look out for. Let's pray. Father God, I ask in the, in the name of your precious Son that you would do a work in us by your Spirit, that a work that we would, we would engage in with you, not a work that we always run away from. I admit, Lord, there are things that you've made me face in my life that I, I simply didn't want to own. There have been things in my life that everybody in my life, my wife, my kids, everybody who knew me could say, you know, you have this issue, and I, I would find ways of just kind of explaining it away, and well, I know it's wrong, but you know, God, I mean, but you know, they did this. I pray, Father, that you would deliver us from the blame game, and that you would help us to begin to really take hold of these truths and let them become living realities in us, to expose them, to confess them, and then begin to act appropriately in response to them. So that, God, we can begin to run that race, that we begin to see that lane that you (laughs) opened up for us and and you designed us to run, and Lord, we would run with it uh, purposely. We, would, we wouldn't be aimless. We wouldn't be men and women beating the air. We'd be going for the goal, the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. The goal, the trophy, the award that is ours alone, created from before time and eternity for us to come to at the end of our journey. Put a vision before us, Lord. I pray especially for those who have been on the cycle for so long that they've, they've given up. They just, they're defeated. And even now they're sitting and saying, well, it's not going to make any difference for me. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just breathe hope and trust and confidence into them that these traps that have been laid for them, that they have allowed themselves to step into and be taken captive and have been able to give the enemy a foothold in their life that reverberates over and over and over again would suddenly be broken and there would be victory and there would be liberty and there would be freedom. The law that liberates, the truths that liberate, God, I pray you'd help us grasp them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.